0: Let's turn this morning in our copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus chapter 20. We're continuing to make our way through God's Word, particularly in this book of Exodus. If you're new to God's Word, you'll be helped to know that there's a copy of the Bible in front of you in uh, the, the chair there nearby, and the book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible, and then we are in chapter 20 of Exodus. We're taking a number of weeks to consider these Ten Commandments that God has given to His people, reminding ourselves that they're not just law that's laid down, but the reflection of God's character, His will for His people. So let's take up our copy. Let's read as Tom prayed that God would give us ears to hear. and Let's read by faith. Exodus 20, chapter 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, You, or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, for that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder." Our Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would help us as we have heard your word, that you would help us by your spirit to hear and to receive your word as it is, your word, the very word of God. And Lord, we're mindful not only of the greatness of your word, but Lord, we are mindful of the sluggishness of heart and the ease in which we're distracted and the many ways that even just the remaining residue of sin within our lives prevents us from hearing and receiving Your Word as it is. So, Father, in light of that, we pray and we ask Your goodness and Your kindness that You would incline our hearts to Your Word, that You would open our eyes to see wonderful things from Your law, that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name, Lord, that you would satisfy us with your presence here, we pray. Amen. Four short words, and it really sounds like an obvious and undisputed statement. And certainly, if any of these Ten Commandments could be assumed, left unstated, with obvious agreement, it would be this one. You shall not murder. But have you ever paused to think, why Murder's wrong. If you asked your coworkers, if you asked your neighbor why they oppose murder, what would they say? Or if you could visit friends in Britain or Australia, in Ghana or in Iraq, why would they as well lament recent examples of murder in their context? Many people may point to the fact that No country, no culture can actually remain stable if its citizens are permitted to run around and kill one another as they deem appropriate. Eventually, any society will just collapse if murder is not upheld as punishable. But is murder wrong simply from a utilitarian standpoint? Is the stability of any particular society or country really the primary reason why we ought to forbid murder. Well, while you chew on that, let's ask another foundational question. Who decides if your life is actually worth protecting? What if society bands together tomorrow morning and decides for the stability and the flourishing of the whole? You must die. Christians have long understood that the sanctity of life is grounded upon more than pragmatic reasoning or even the social majority. At the heart of the Sixth Commandment is, again, the good design and the purposes of God. Remember how these ten words actually began. We just read them a few moments ago in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Yahweh, the eternal self-existent God who created all things and redeems His people, has also made known His will to His people. And So when we consider the Sixth Commandment, we find much more than just pragmatic rules in order to establish a society what we actually hear is the glory of mankind and the great purpose of God for our lives. Friend, at the heart of the sixth commandment is the God of life who grants life to image bearers like you and me. So let's consider this sixth commandment by asking a few questions. Number one, what's the basis of such a command? And then let's ask how might we apply this command. But then we also need to give time to consider what this command exposes. The basis, the application, and then what it exposes. What's the basis for this command, you shall not murder? The definition of murder is pretty Widely and broadly understood because it's really just the unjustifiable and unlawful taking of another human life When we boil it down, we're ultimately really just wrestling with two questions. Just what is a human being? And where does dignity come from? What's the value of a life? Modern science would point to cells, proteins, Chemical reactions that define a human body. And that our dignity is tied to our functional ability to contribute to a society or to communicate with others. But Christians have long understood that the ultimate dignity of human life is tied directly to the one who gives life. The sixth commandment, like the fifth, is grounded upon God's creation of men and women in his image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds in the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. the doctrine of God's image placed upon humanity that upholds and affirms the value of human life. And what this does is it moves us beyond utilitarian ethics into this created purpose. You exist on this earth to know God and give Him glory. That's God's design for your life. No matter a person's race, ethnicity, how they vote, their health or disabilities, their age or sickness, or even if they become an inconvenience to us, each one is created as an image-bearer of God. And so as man is created by God and for God, he exists for God and by God's design. And so murder is not only the unlawful taking of a human life, it is ultimately a slap upon God's face. Murder is to take God's picture that He's placed upon His creation and to tear it to shreds. Murder is to take the King of Heaven's seal that He has stamped upon His image bearer and to break that seal with no regard for the King of Heaven who has authoritatively said, my image. The basis for this command has everything to do with the authority of God and the dignity of man. Well, how do we apply this? How do we apply you shall not murder? Well, remember, before you jump to any seemingly obvious answer, That as we read each one of these commands, we're moving beyond the mere words and taking into account the greater purpose. What is the intent of God giving us this command? Remember, if it's given to us in a negative of what displeases God, then we'd be wise to say, what is the positive of this command to know what pleases God? Consider first what this command requires. To state it positively, we could say that this this command binds us to pursue all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life or the life of others. You shall not murder means you shall seek to preserve life, yours and your neighbor's. Think, first of all, of your own life and what it means to preserve that life. Is interesting because historically Christians have understood and applied this command by pointing to the importance of recreation. Preservation of life has so much more to do with than the last few breaths that you take at the end of your earthly life. To preserve life means what will cultivate the life that God has given you for His purposes. That's why Christians have historically meditated upon this and thought upon this command, thinking quickly of how recreation for the body and mind is so important for the preservation of life. Why good men and women of God have extolled the importance of athletics and music and reading. What cultivates the preservation of life? The sort of life-giving activities that come through the enjoyment of nature. Doing a puzzle, swinging a golf club, casting a fly rod, it preserves life insofar as it cultivates life so that I can live my life to the glory of God. Rest when you need to rest. Seek out medical care when you are sick. Preserve life. Friends, the preservation of life is so much bigger than just death. It is the cultivation of life. Think not only of yourself, think about how this would apply in preserving the life of your neighbor. To preserve life, we must also include loving our neighbors as ourselves, and especially thinking about their well-being and the cultivation and protection of their life. Preservation of life, then, would mean providing for those who are in need. By showing generosity with what we have and sharing with those who are in need. Preservation of life would also then include taking any sort of preemptive measures to protect the lives of others. It's interesting, Moses, before they entered the promised land, gathered everyone together and recounted the law again. You'll find the Ten Commandments also in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And then Moses began to expound and apply the goodness of this law. And he comes to the section of basically loving your neighbor. Moses lays out in Deuteronomy 22.8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Preservation of life and the understanding of loving my neighbor. So even within very ordinary practices, hey, if you build a house, put a wall around the roof. Why? Why? so that in the cool of the evening when your neighbor comes over and you are rejoicing and you are putting your feet up and giving thanks to God, the neighbor that you are to love doesn't fall off your roof and kill himself. Meaning you have no right to say, well, you fell off my roof. I guess you should be more careful. God says if you love your neighbor, do as much as you can as depends upon you to preserve that life. Just put a wall up around that flat roof. A very obvious and Very simple, but very important application of preservation of life. God actually commanded them to apply this sixth commandment by considering the well-being of their neighbor and putting this protective ledge around them. So when a society takes time to think about caring for others, when a church takes time to think well about loving others, And when it puts into application this whole idea of preserving life, what it's essentially doing is reflecting God's good design to love our neighbor. Seeking for very practical, tangible, and experiential ways that we can uphold the sixth commandment and preserve life. Has God given you a measure of authority? What are some ways that you could use even the smallest amount of authority to protect and preserve life, to cultivate life for yourself, for your wife, for your home? How about those in your place of employment? How about those on your block? Friends, this is a wonderful way that we can show God's good design and love for neighbor when we seek to preserve and protect life for others. Keeping that in mind, this command is not a prohibition against a couple of things. You shall not murder is not a prohibition against self-defense. If a person's being attacked and that person flees as far as he or she can and still is in danger without escape and if they call out for help and their attackers still pursue and they still remain in danger... They are left with a choice. Either He must permit Himself to be killed or He must kill in self-defense. God would give clear instruction on this in Exodus 22, teaching that if the taking of the life of another to defend innocent life is necessary, there is no blood guilt. It's God's teaching in Exodus 22. So this command, you shall not murder is not a prohibition, according to God's design, against the defense of self. But secondly, this this sixth commandment is not a prohibition against capital punishment. It's interesting in Genesis chapter 9, what God declares to Moses there, this important passage for understanding that Capital punishment for murder is not a violation of the sixth commandment, but it's actually a defense, again, of God's image. What does God say in, Genesis, or excuse me, in Exodus, Genesis 9, 6? Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. Again, for God made man in his own image. It's inescapable. The image of God placed upon man puts dignity upon the man insofar as that if any other man takes the life of that image bearer, that murderer shall be put to death. Human life is so precious that the taking of it was to be punished severely. Now God has given the sword to the civil magistrate or to the government And that sword is to be used to punish those who do evil. Listen to Thomas Watson and his application of this commandment. To kill an offender is not murder, but justice. A private person sins if he draws the sword. A public person sins if he puts up the sword. A magistrate ought not To let the sword of justice rust in the scabbard, as he should not let the sword to be too sharp by severity, so neither should the edge of it be blunted by too much levity. The sixth commandment is not a prohibition also against just war. Peace is always the goal, but war is sometimes necessary to defend peace. And again, in Romans 13, we hear that God has appointed the civil magistrate, the state, to be the agent of God's wrath to protect the innocent. Remember, when Jesus encountered the centurion, what did he tell him? Well, he didn't tell him go and sin no more, and if you're really going to be a faithful follower, you need to defect from the Roman legion. Do you remember when Roman soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked what they needed to do to repent? What does repentance look like for us, John? John did not tell them, resign immediately from the Roman army. You can't be a soldier and belong to God's people. He didn't say that. What did John tell him? What he said is that repentance forbids you from using your authority for injustice through extortion and would also mean being content with what you are given. So essentially, John says, be an honest, honorable soldier. Pastor, theologian, well, Helma Sobracco said, "...a war is lawful when enemies conspire to attack a nation that has not offended them, but which dwells quietly and peacefully. These in- enemies, coming against them, robbing them of their goods, and making the people their bondservants. And if the government of such country then arms itself against such enemies, resists violence with violence, punishes them, and renders them incapable of returning... This is a righteous undertaking whereby the wicked are punished and the good persons are protected. Pastor Brockle is essentially expositing Romans 13 and reminding us of the goodness of God's protection and the goodness of His design in which He's given certain states, governors, authority to defend and to protect. Well, what does this command then actually forbid? In the most simple terms, the Sixth Commandment forbids the taking away of our own life, the unjust taking of our neighbor's life, or any such practices that would cultivate that. Number one, it forbids self-murder, which we refer to as suicide. There's hardly a more painful topic than suicide for those who have experienced it within a family, within a group of friends. And yet for all of its pain, we must be able to say that it is a sin. It's not the unpardonable sin, but it is a sin. And one of the problems with our therapeutic age is that the recurring themes of victimhood and lack of moral responsibility are given a platform. And we often hear things like this after the death of a celebrity with words of affirmation after they took their own life, refusing to put any sort of ethical blame on the one who murdered themselves. And now initially this sounds very compassionate, but it isn't. We do not help struggling souls by refusing to tell them that suicide is displeasing to their creator. Lovingly, spoken at the right time alongside other bits of wise counsel, this reality may be the one thing that awakens a suicidal soul back to the reality of what lies before them. When we're able to say your life is precious to God, even when you have decided that it is not, And we're able to say that God is the giver of life, the sustainer of life. And even in our desire, he reveals himself to be sufficient to carry us through even the valley of the shadow of death. To say otherwise is to set ourselves up to be wiser than God. Or to somehow say that our circumstances are beyond God's sustaining ability. The sixth commandment also forbids the murder of infants, which we call abortion. Now, if you've been paying attention to the cultural conversation for the past 50 years, you know that faithful Christians have been pointing abortion advocates to the plain truth that this medical procedure is actually medical murder. Now this is more than a political talking point to rally an evangelical base and what is at stake here is actually much higher than voter turnout or even a nation's laws, as important as those are. The ultimate disgrace of abortion is the rebellion against the authority and the design of God who is the giver of life. It is the slap in God's face to say that His design and His authority do not matter. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. When biological life begins, you also exist as a person, made in the image of God, created to to honor God, and with a life that deserves to be protected. So the Sixth Commandment most certainly forbids the murder of infants. Socially, culturally, we can think of a third area of where we need to remember that this Sixth Commandment has direct application. We apply this also when we recognize that the Sixth Commandment forbids the murder of the sick and the aged. Now in many generations, you would not need to say such a thing. But assisted suicide or death with dignity, these laws continue to find acceptance within American laws and in the broader Western world. I just read, I believe, yesterday there's 19 states with some version of this law being considered in the next year. 19 states within the United States considering the killing of Be terminally ill, as justifiable. And if you listen to the argument, it's often positioned as the caring option that upholds individual rights, but these laws are riddled with problems. Some versions of the law don't require the notification of family members. Some versions don't specify what sort of doctor can prescribe these pills. Some allow you to pick up these suicide drugs at a local pharmacy and administer them to yourself. And we haven't even talked about the possibility of doctors misdiagnosing a terminal disease. Now, we would be wise to pursue clear-headed thinking when it comes to the topic of compassion. What is compassion? The problem with assisted suicide is that we're not talking about the end of treatment. We're talking about ending a life. The difference between those two categories is tremendous. Because a person may say, I have lived a full life, and this treatment that's made available to me, it's not actually going to cure what I have. And I want to rest and enjoy the measure of days, whatever they might be, I want to rest those days in the presence of family, whatever God has given, my Bible before me, someone singing hymns next to me, the faces that I know and love, and I'll leave my life to Him. That is tremendously different than saying, I will die now by these drugs the decision to end treatment is a far cry from deciding to end a life. During the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands, Dutch physicians famously refused to obey the orders of Nazi troops to end the lives of the elderly and the terminally ill. Ironically, in 2001, Holland became the first country to give legal status to doctor-assisted suicide. One author Observed, it only took one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Now, while the sixth commandment is rather blunt, quite short, the implications of these four words reach often into the ordinary, finer details of everyday, ordinary life as human beings. We apply this command by remembering that it is God who is the author of life and has formed His image upon every human being. We love God and we love our neighbor every time we apply this command. Last question. What does this command actually reveal? What does God show us by giving us these words. Now, it's quite easy to cherry-pick examples of culture in which nations and cities violate the sixth commandment, but this command reveals not only the crumbling structures of a society, friend, this command also reveals the corruption of our own hearts. Murder often lurks much closer to you than you might imagine this command reveals first of all the depth of our guilt how did christ read and apply this command if you want the answer to that go read matthew chapter 5 verse 21 through 26 cut to the chase i'll read it for you you have heard that it was said of those of old to those of old you shall not murder And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What does this sixth commandment expose? It exposes the depth of our guilt. The Sixth Commandment not only prohibits violent acts of murder, but all violent emotions and attentions of the heart. We could be 100% innocent of never having committed physical murder, but still face the wrath of God for unrepented anger, bitterness, envy, slander, rage. In short, the sixth commandment reveals the extent of our guilt because the law is not just physical, but it is spiritual, meaning the law pertains to the matters of my heart. This means that our burning envy reveals our murderous, Guilt. Each time we become upset or enraged when others do better than us or when others receive greater honor than us, honor that we think we deserve and we are envious of what they have, we prove ourselves to be murderers. It's the sort of resentment that breeds unfriendliness. You see them in the grocery store and you change aisles. Can't see them. How could they? prevents us from dealing with him or her in love. So much so that we're unable to rejoice at their successes because it's through envy that we just fixate upon their condition. We brood over their undeservedness of this good and we smugly laugh at any opportunity when we get to see their humiliation. This envious spirit is nothing less than murder of the heart. And hear the warning of Scripture: Envy corrupts our strength and health. Envy becomes rottenness to our bones." It's Proverbs 14:30. James tells us that envy causes confusion and even greater evil." James 3:16: Envy is a work of the flesh. Sin, which proceeds from sin, which ends up in sin and results in death. Galatians 5. Not only our envy, but if we take Christ's word seriously, that means that our hatred reveals our guilt. Hatred is this burning anger that might be restrained for a while that nobody knows about. Hidden locked away in the internal thoughts and emotions of a person, but left unchecked, left unrepented of, it eventually erupts in words and actions. Absalom waited two whole years before executing his hatred toward Amnon. Hatred fuels our delight at the ruin of another person. Hatred fertilizes our slandering, our... Dishonoring our scorning of another person. Sometimes we'll say, I don't know why that came out of me. How could I have said that? The Word of God would tell you, friend, that it is because of the hatred that dwells within our hearts. Our wrath reveals our guilt. Wrath is that sort of enraged fury where the evil of our hearts now harnesses our will and we erupt in sinful passion by doing evil to our neighbor. Remember that wrath is listed among the works of the flesh. The sort of sinful anger that prevents all good works and produces nothing but evil fruits. That's James' language in James chapter 1. Anger is the work of fools Ecclesiastes 7. But not only our envy, our hatred, our wrath, we would also have to think of the very revenge that desire that resides within our hearts also reveals our guilt. What's revenge? Well, it's just simply that desire to retaliate against someone for a wrong actually committed or imagined to have been committed. Ultimately, revenge is putting ourselves in the place of God as an act of opposition to Him. We are accusing God for not dealing justly with the offender. Now, I guarantee you, I never think that when I desire revenge. But if I slow down and replay the game tape, that's exactly what is happening. I am saying, God, you are unjust in the handling of my circumstances. Therefore, while you're sitting on the sidelines, I'm going to do what you have not done. Probably for good reason that the Lord says, vengeance is mine. Revengeful anger gives the devil an opportunity for greater destruction and for even greater deception. Go read Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 about what Paul has to say about revenge. Friend, please remember what the Scriptures say about God's law. Paul says in Romans 7, 12 that the law is holy, that the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So when we talk about the sixth commandment, exposing the heart, we have to read that exposing through the light of Romans 7, that that exposing is holy and righteous and good. The law is not wrong. Sin is wrong. And the law is good as it shows us our sin. To scorn God's law would be the same as despising the CT scan or the MRI or the x-ray that tells you the truth about yourself. I hate that CT scan. It's evil. The means to expose your malady is not the problem. It's a good and gracious means to point you to the truth. To show you maybe what you didn't even know was lurking below the surface. And upon seeing the truth, we must then repent of sin and, upon, and then believe upon God's provision in Christ, saying, I didn't even know this was there. Thank you for revealing this. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Change me. And this leads directly into the second thing that this sixth commandment exposes. Not only the depth of our guilt, but ultimately the depths of God's grace. Let's pause to remember that there is an expression of wrath that is 100% justified, 100% righteous, 100% of the time. It's God's wrath against sin. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We must sit down, close our mouths, and hear the diagnosis of God's law. Take it in, soberly reflect upon it, and hear it as God's righteous prognosis. I'm a sinner. I'm condemned by the law as guilty, and I'm deserving of God's wrath and all the fury of hell. Hear that, and then hear the announcement of the gospel. Yes, while God's wrath against sin is just... Jesus took this boiling cup of God's wrath that was filled to the brim and He drank every last drop. The Father gave Him this cup. He willingly took this cup and He has disposed of this cup for His people forever. Hear the prophet Isaiah. Surely He's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, he shall be the righteous one, my servant. Make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And the Lord says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus is the only one who perfectly kept all the commandments, never committed murder in thought, word, deed, and yet, was killed for murderers like us. To borrow from Peter's sermon, the author of life was killed, but God raised him from the dead. And through the sacrificial death of Christ and his bodily resurrection, there is forgiveness of sin, there is cleansing of guilt to all who put their trust in him. This means, friend, that every envious thought, every word of slander, every cursing, every racial slur, every burning act of jealousy is graciously forgiven by Jesus. This also means that every abortion and every murder can be wiped clean through the atoning blood of Christ. Why else would Paul say that the law came to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When we look to the sixth commandment, we see not only the depths of our guilt, but we see the glorious heights of God's grace that covers sin. So while society and culture attempt to place value upon human life by what it can accomplish, what it can create, God announces the sanctity of human life by placing his image upon us. And so when you hear, you shall not murder, we're not only meant to hear the action that's forbidden, but the great purpose of God's design for us as his creation. Created to bear His image and to reflect His glory. What a wonderful privilege we have been given. The God who spoke all of creation into existence in the span of six days has created you and me in His image. The image that's ruined by sin, but restored in Christ. And so now we get to go out into a new week, and we go as those who get to announce the God of life, slain by death, yet risen again in order to give life unto the dead. So it is through this law that we hear not only of our reality of our condition, but through this law that we're pointed to the resolution for our great condition as it's found in Christ. Our God and Father, we pray that you would most surely and effectively cause your word to bear good fruit in our lives. Lord, we plead that by word and spirit that you would cause your good purposes to bear fruit among us, that you would not only convict of sin, but that you would assure of the grace that is ours in Christ. Father, we pray that you would do so that we might more fully reflect your glory as you desire and that we would more frequently announce the the tremendous grace that's given to us in our Lord Jesus. Thank you for setting your image upon us. Thank you for giving us your son, we pray. Amen.